Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Oh boy, a major mea culpa. I am guilty. I got it wrong. And boy, did I hear about it. And you're going to hear about it too on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my apology tour. I uh, recently did uh, some information in a video on a 223 Remington versus the 5.56 NATO. There has always been a lot of questions and confusion about these two, and I thought I covered it pretty well, um, but we put a short out that was taken out of context. It was about a minute long, and I did not use precise language. I got things wrong, and boy, did I hear about it. <laughs> Here is something that came in from Aaron, who pulled no punches, and he said, On today's episode of Fudlore, episode making crap up as I go along. <laughs> so, what was I making up? Well, in this short, here is what I said near the end of it when I was describing some differences between those two. I said, essentially... With the 5.56, because the military was accommodating some longer bullets, they had to chamber that a little bit longer for those longer bullets. Here's where imprecise language gets me in trouble. And this happens a lot. And we shooters, I think, are guilty of this. You see a lot of people referencing caliber, like, what caliber are you shooting? They don't want to know if you're shooting a 30 caliber or a 40 caliber or a 20 caliber. They want to know the cartridge you're shooting. And then some folks will say, oh, Ron, you're nitpicking, and you know what I mean. Well, sometimes we know what you mean, but other times we interpret things, and boy, that's kind of the mistake I made here. The chamber is a little bit longer. It's not exactly precise. Now, let's see what John had to say about it. Capital letters. What? Question marks, exclamation points. Why on earth would you need a longer chamber? The case dimensions are still the same and the bullet will engage the rifling at the same point. Exactly where the casing ends. Well, I got to say, uh, John, I appreciate what you're saying here, but you got that one wrong. <laughs> 
the bullet will engage the rifling at the same point exactly where the casing ends. No, where the casing ends, the bullet is still sticking out and the rifling does not start. There's a throat or an open area, unrifled, in front of the mouth of the cartridge for the bullet to rest in without touching the barrel walls. And then it ramps up very gently into the rifling further down. It's the throat area or the lead, and it's called freebore where you have no rifling in that area. I think you knew what you were talking about, but again, the words aren't exactly precise. So John continues, the bullet, if longer, is simply seated slightly deeper into the cartridge if that is required for feeding. This guy, meaning me, is cracked, capital cracked, absolute fuddlore. <laughs> I am being ripped up here, guys. <laughs> now let's hear from Munster777. Five, five, six, different in the freebore and typically loaded hotter. We're going to cover that. There's a couple of misconceptions there, too. And this is from, hmm, shall I say, old fart hacks. Shall I say it? Old hacks. He says, so, yes, a little more freebore, but the chamber itself is identical. Now we're getting precise. We're getting much closer to what's really going on here. So here is the deal. What I should have said is that the 5.56 chamber is a little more generously cut. The cartridges are exactly the same. The 223 dimensions are exactly the same as the 5.56 dimensions, except for in the total or the overall length of the cartridge. With This one kind of surprised me. The 223 Remington is uh, established with SAMI specs for an overall cartridge length of 2.26 inches. The 5.56 is not SAMI spec at all. That is the military cartridge that was not SAMI specified for commercial ammunition manufacturing and guns and everything else. That is a uh, dimension determined by the military, and they limited the overall cartridge length with bullets seated to 2.25 inch. So it's a little bit shorter. Now, why would that be? I'm guessing it's just so that they're extra sure that these cartridges are going to fit the magazines for the M16 without being a little bit too long, perhaps, and increasing some potential for jams. And that's the same thing that they're doing with their chamber. The chamber dimensions for the 5.56 are just a little bit more generous than they are for the 223. So they're oh, about two, two thousandths longer um, or wider in some dimensions. The biggest one, however, is the throat length, that free bore. It's double in a 5.56 over the SAMI specs for the 223. And then a lot of guys will say, well, this is because the military loads hotter, meaning they have higher chamber pressures. And this is another confusing thing because the 223 is specified for 55,000 PSI of pressure. And that is uh, done with the electropiezo mechanism. And then the military measures it differently. And they established it at 62,366. Man, that's pretty precise for the average maximum chamber pressure. So it does sound like there's a pretty significant difference between those two. Turns out that difference has more to do with how it's measured 
than the actual pressures. The SAMI uh, measuring system with the piezoelectrics is they, they put this in the barrel or the chamber of the barrel so that the measuring um, little crystal that they put down there is right over pretty much the center of the case in the chamber. So figure the middle of the 223 case is where they measure the pressure. The military measures it out at the neck where the bullet's about to emerge. I think that's exactly where the military does it. It ends up giving you different pressure readings even though the pressures are the same. So if you took a 5.56, they tell me, I haven't done this, folks, but they say that if you measure the 5.56 with the same piezoelectric positioning on the cartridge case as they do at the 2.23, they end up almost being identical in their pressures. So there probably isn't really a lot more pressure in the military round. And then I think the last ingredient here is this idea that the military cases are much, much stronger because they use thicker brass. That may or may not be the case. They certainly have the um, primers locked in on the military cases. They do that just for assurances that in the, in the heat of the battle and shipping and everything else, they're not going to loosen any primers. So they've got a little bit of a crimp at the back, the military crimp that civilian cartridges do not have. That doesn't affect the pressures or anything. That just holds the primer in. Um but the brass itself can vary widely depending on who manufactured it. You'll get this in your standard 223 Remington brass too. One brand may have a thicker brass than the other. It really doesn't matter all that much because brass is malleable and it's designed to expand with pressure to seal the chamber. If they have it so thick that it can't expand, well, then you wouldn't seal the chamber and the gases could come back. So they all expand, seal the chamber in a microsecond when that round goes off, and then shrink back down as it cools in a microsecond, obviously. Consider the auto-loading fire. I mean, the automatic fire, fully automatic. Brrr. Those cartridges are sealing and cooling to come out at a remarkable rate. But that's what happens. So I don't think the thicker cartridge is going to withstand more pressures. It's the chamber that has to hold in the pressures. And, of course, the bolt being locked and handling all the back thrust pressures and et cetera, et cetera. And if you get a good seal with that expansion of the case against the chamber walls, you get very little back thrust. So that, I think, is pretty accurate. Now, guys, we're probably going to weigh in and... Argue this one too, and you're welcome to do that. And maybe I got something wrong again, but I apologize for my imprecise language in saying that the chamber was longer. The actual base to shoulder datum line for head spacing between both the 223 and the 556 are the same. It's just that there's a longer throat and a little more generous tolerances in all the dimensions of the chamber of the 5.56. Oh, and that brings up the wild chamber, W-Y-L-D-E. This gentleman designed a chamber that kind of splits the difference. See, the 223 is appreciated by precision shooters because being a tight chamber, it lines everything up a little more precisely, and that's what contributes to better accuracy. The military is more concerned with dirty cartridges functioning in the heat of battle, and that's why they have the more generous dimensions inside the chambers. So what Wilde did was kind of split the difference, make the 5.56 chamber a little bit tighter, but not quite as tight as the 223. And the benefit of that is you can shoot either the 5.56 ammo or the 223 ammo. 
In the general world of shooting, if you have a bolt-action rifle, say, or even a, any other style that is chambered and uh, on the barrel labeled 223 Remington, it's probably safest not to shoot the 5.56 in it. That's what everyone recommends. Don't shoot 5.56 in 223. But because the 223 is a little bit uh, smaller in a generous chamber of 5.56, no problem there. And the other thing is the twist rate of the barrels. 5.56 set up uh, for fast twist because they're shooting some 62 grain bullets and also some as long as or as high in weight as 77 grains. You can imagine how long that is. And I guess that's a special tracer bullet that they sometimes use in the military. So they generally will have a one and seven inch twist barrel. And having a faster, a faster twist rate can increase your pressures too, because the bullet is hitting more of the surface of the lands as it goes down the barrel. If you've got your rifling gentle, it's sliding along those edges. And the more you sharpen it up, the more it hits them directly and uh, can raise pressure slightly. All of those things add up to some concern. So stick with what's labeled on your barrel. If it says 223 Remington, shoot that. If it says 5.56, you can shoot the 5.56 or the 223 Rem. Shoo! Oh, I hope that settles it out, guys. <laughs> All right. Now, there's one more on this that has more to do with the military, and it helps explain why there's so much confusion about this. This is from someone calling himself El Ingenierio or something like that. Hey, this is poorly researched and wrong. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> the military adopted the 223 Remington in a 55-grain load at 3,200 feet per second, and they called it the M193 ball cartridge for the M16 rifle. The M193223 was renamed the M193 5.56 millimeter under the U.S. Army metrication of the 1970s. NATO adopted the 62 grain, 22 caliber Belgian SS 109 cartridge in the 1980s. The U.S. named the cartridge the M855 5.56 cartridge, and the SS 109 uses the modified barrel adopted to the M16A2 rifle in the M4 carpine. <laughs> Folks, if you can remember all these numbers and names and abbreviations, more power to you. But for me, this explains why we get confused about some of this stuff. The military loves to have all kinds of numbers and acronyms and things, and they're always adjusting and, and changing things up. I kind of appreciate the civilian version, 223, 5.56. Let's keep it simple, guys. But that kind of helps explain why I get confused by these numbers, and perhaps you do too. Uh, well, let's go to the easier ones, I hope, that the team has put together for me. If we can get this computer to fire up. Ah, here we go. All right, what do we have here? Illegal bullets. It looks like they've categorized some. These are all responses, it looks like to something I said about illegal bullets. Are there any illegal bullets? Someone asked me a while back and I said, nah, not really. Maybe some poisoned bullets or uranium, spent uranium bullets and such. And I got a lot of feedback and kickback on this because apparently there are some bullets that are illegal. But the commenters that I've been reading um, are not all in agreement. So let's hear from this uh, 
David. He says in 1982, NBC broadcast a television special on Teflon-coated bullets that they argued were a serious threat to American law enforcement because of their supposedly increased ability to penetrate ballistic vests. This led to uh, U.S. gun control organizations labeling them cop killers. I remember that, the cop killer bullets. So in 1983, the U.S. representative in Congress reported that he got the DuPont company to agree to stop selling Teflon-coated bullets to companies that made ammunition. But I don't know that they actually outlawed them. But he does have here a list of states that have outlawed Teflon-coated bullets. Several calibers were proven to penetrate ballistic vests under certain conditions. The inventor of this Teflon-coated bullet said that in a 1990 interview, he said that adding Teflon coating to a bullet added about 20% more penetrating power through metal and glass, but the Teflon cut down on the bullet's ability to cut through the nylon or Kevlar of body armor. So it was just the opposite of what they were claiming, I guess, in that NBC broadcast on the cop killer bullets. Regardless, he lists here several states that have outlawed to one degree or another Teflon-coated bullets in handgun ammunition. Alabama, Hawaii, Kansas, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Virginia. So apparently there are some rules against some Teflon-coated bullets in some cartridges in some states. Here's one from the Reloader's Closet. They may have outlawed the old-style accelerator round that used to get like in a 30-odd six. Oh, yes, this was the Remington Accelerator. Those were the 22 rounds with the plastic Sabo jacket on them that came off in flight. I think the problem was that there was never any rifling left on the bullet, just on the plastic Sabo, which fell off. So if you get my drift where this is going, in a crime scene, there was no evidence of engraving on the bullet. Uh-huh. Yeah, that is, um, I've heard that before, but it's not true. I mean, it's true that the bullet's not going to be engraved, but outlawing it is not true because they still sell those. You can even buy the, the polymer or the Sabos and load your own for hand loading. So that has not been outlawed. But it's an interesting point about traceability because there are many other ways you don't trace, get the rifling to trace the bullet. You know, you can study the rifling and pretty much say this bullet has been engraved by the rifling in this particular gun that we recovered from the crime scene. You can put the two together and that's pretty standard stuff in forensics. But think about frangible varmint bullets that come apart, the so-called explosive bullets. I don't think they find much on the left on the jackets of those that they can do any of that study on, and they've never been illegal. Um, and there are probably other situations like that. Even, gosh, go to, say, a muzzle loader, now, a ball, a patched ball. There's not going to be any engraving on that because the cotton patch is going to be between the ball and the rifling. So, um, yeah, that's a common misconception. All right, here is something from Aaron, Mr. Ron. To answer your question about illegal ammo, the following are federally prohibited ammo types by federal law. Steel core, titanium, and armor-piercing ammo, poisoned rounds, high-explosive rounds, depleted uranium. Got that one right. Bolo shotgun rounds. I think that's where you have the pellets tied together with wire. I think that's what that means. 
And then Dragon's Breath shotgun rounds. And Dragon's Breath is interesting. They're incendiary rounds, illegal to possess, manufacture, or use. This is what Aaron says. But no, um, Dragon Breath rounds are sold. I've seen them. I haven't shot any, but what, what it is is that they are loaded with at least some magnesium. I don't know if they coat the pellets with magnesium or if it's just all chunks of magnesium in there. But when you fire magnesium, you, you light it up, it burns at something like 4,000 um, degrees <laughs> and very bright. Something like 10% of its energy is converted to light. So that's what you're going to find in fireworks. You know, the 4th of July with the big booms and you got all the colors and really bright lights up there. Um, that's magnesium being exploded. And you put it in shot shell, shoot it downrange, you get this incredible sort of like a flamethrower thing. And they're illegal in many places because of the fire danger. But they sell them. I've seen them advertised in 20 gauge as well as 12 gauge and who knows what else. But they might be illegal in certain jurisdictions. Don't take a blanket statement word for this one. But that's an interesting round. But thanks for the information. I think we're going to all have to look into these things at a local level. Here's something from Slimy Garbage. <laughs> Slimy Garbage says that there are videos of regular citizens shooting all of those. Oh, he's responding to this Aaron above. Shooting all of those aside from the poison bullet. And they're on YouTube. Let's be fair. There's only one guy who had a 100% verifiable depleted uranium round, and he only had two of them. Okay. And then Aaron responds back to Slimy and says... You can get access to those kinds of ammo if you go through a special BATF, that's the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, a processing, the same as you do to get a short-barreled rifle or a fully automatic machine gun. If you don't go through that special BATF process, it's a serious felony, not worth prison time. Whew. All right, so I think the upshot here, folks, is that there are some illegal bullets out there. I don't know that we've exactly nailed down where they're illegal. And in which, maybe in which cartridges they're illegal. Some sound like they're illegal in handguns only. Some are federal, perhaps. Some are state regulations. And I'm sure there are some city and county and whatever. Just be careful. I don't think we really need to worry about this because you go to your local sporting goods store to buy the ammo for your 308. You're probably not going to find a lot of choices, but the standard stuff. We're looking for target bullets and hunting bullets. And that's about it. Wow. All right. Wow. We get to go to a new category here. Minimum cartridge sizes for hunting. We often talk about this because in some states you have to have a minimum, either an energy level that your cartridge puts out or a caliber. Uh, and 22 is often the sticking point. Some states mandate at least a 23 or 24 caliber. So you're not allowed to use 22 center fires for big game hunting. Um, but let's just see what some of these folks say. Here is uh, SB Racing from Victoria, Australia. He says, here we have a minimum legal 270. So even the 6.5 Creedmoor isn't legal. Well, it's more efficient. Many, No, he says it is more than efficient enough to do the job, but it's illegal over there. They have to have a minimum of 270, and I assume they mean 270 Winchester. Uh, SB did not specify that. All right. Now, here's somebody countering that with Republic of South Africa. Havoc 
says smaller bucks such as Springbok here in the Republic of South Africa are taken easily with a 223 Remington and a 55 grain Game King. All right. And VTP says, I have heard people say that the 22 long rifle for deer is not something that they'd ever do under normal conditions, but that's a good option when you get an SHTF scenario. The stuff hits the fan. If they have to escape into the woods quickly with just one rifle and as much ammunition as they can carry, they take a Ruger 10-22 and as many boxes of 22 ammo as they have. The idea would be that they could kill a deer if they absolutely had to. And under those conditions, there would be no government existing any longer and therefore no game wardens to prosecute them. So that, <laughs> so, okay, yeah. Yeah, the, you know, that's a good point. I've often said that even I would choose the 22 long rifle as my survival rifle. If I had to get down to one rifle, heaven forbid, the 22 is just extremely versatile. No, it's not really powerful and all the rest of it, but we do know that it's easy to carry a lot of ammunition. Uh, the rifles are usually fairly light and handy. And if you get close enough and put your shots in the right place, you can take down almost anything. You just have to be a really serious and good hunter in order to pull this off. But gosh, I would hate to drag around as many rounds in, say, 30 out six as I could in 22 long rifle. So that's a good point. All right, here's a question from Josh. Let's see. Space in cartridges. Let's just see what he's asking. Is there any dead space in cartridges? How can you compensate for the extra room without completely destroying things by adding too much powder? Oh, I'll get it. Is the cartridge designed to hold the exact weight of powder without any dead space? Oh, yeah. Josh, with a lot of cartridges, you can hear powder shaking. You shake it and go, hey, but that's pretty loose in there. Why didn't they fill it up? The reason are variable, actually. One, older cartridges that were designed in black powder days, there was a lot of bulk in black powder. So they would design those to hold all the black powder they could. But when they came out with smokeless powder and made the transition and stuffed smokeless powder into, say, a 4570 or 4440, you had a lot of excess room because there's way more power or energy in a smokeless powder than the, than the smoke powder, the black powder. So, yes, you're going to have some extra space. And if you fill that space, you've got the potential for having too much pressure in a particular rifle. So you've got to balance the quantity of powder and its burning rate with the space you have and what that particular rifle can handle for pressures and that cartridge can handle for pressures. Now, in a modern cartridge like a 308 Winchester or a 270 or something, you can also hear it shake sometimes, but others not. And if you study your hand loading manuals, you will notice that some loads actually have compressed overcharges. They'll go to 105, 109% of the capacity of the powder reservoir. And then they compress it when they seat the bullet. Now, does that sound like it would blow something up? Well, it depends on the burning rate of the powder. Some powders burn more slowly, some burn more rapidly. And then there's also the structure of the powder granules. There are stick powders that are fairly bulky, and then there are little round spherical ball powders that fit into a much smaller space. So it can be either way. There, you don't have to fill them up. You've got to balance all that stuff out. Good question, Josh. All right, here's from, I think, Jonathan. Hello, Ron. I'm a big fan of your show and what you do. Do you think the 375 H&H is the most influential cartridge? Or is the 375 Ruger headed that way? 
What's your opinion? Huh. Josh or Jonathan, the 375 is definitely an influential cartridge. And I don't know exactly what you mean by influential cartridge, but I would I would guess you would consider it really popular and probably the parent cartridge for a lot of other cartridges and certainly qualifies. And if we took it in both of those, yeah, both of those parameters, I think I would have to say that the 8x57 German Mauser is probably the most consequential cartridge because it gave birth essentially to the 757 Mauser, which in turn gave birth to the 30-06, which in turn gave birth to all kinds of them, 270, 25-06, 280 Remington, and then shorten it down, you get your 308 family and all the cartridges that sprang from that. And of course, the 30-06 is known as a do-all cartridge used around the world, and it has taken everything, including Elephant. So that one, I think, would be number one via the 8x57, which started it all. And what I mean by that is that the base is the same, the rim diameter and the head diameter and the body pretty close. You know, you might get one cartridge that sprang from that with a 0.469 diameter head and the next one would be a 0.470 and the next one 0.471. And those are kind of standard basic tolerances that can go either way. And if you measure your 30 out six or your 270, you will find that they vary considerably. Some of them I've measured as narrow as 0.466 when they were supposed to be 0.470. So that just gave birth to all kinds of cartridges. And obviously they're used for <laughs> everything. Even the 22250 Remington has that same rim and head diameter as the 30 out six and the 8 by 57. So that would be my number one most influential. Then I think probably the 375 would come in. That gave rise, of course, to all the belted magnums. 300 wind mag, 7 rem mag, the uh, 264 wind mag, 458 wind mag, 458 lot. Uh, all the Weatherby, the early Weatherbys before they went to the fatter cartridges, but all the 270, 25, 257, 300 Weatherby, 7 Weatherby, geez, a bunch of them. And then around the world, there were others that were fooling around with that same case. So yeah, that gave rise to a lot of them. And that is another do-it-all, all-around cartridge. And obviously, it shoots a much heavier, bigger bullet, 37 caliber. And that's kind of become the standard minimum for dangerous game in some countries, which is one of the reasons why it's so popular. You don't have to handle the recoil and the heavy bullets of a 500 or a 470. Um, and then it makes it a lot more viable for the smaller animals. Uh, 250 grainish bullet in a 375 is a lot more palatable and easy to handle and shoot for your smaller antelopes and such. And then you just go to the 300 grain bullet and take on your dangerous game. So darn good selection. Um, now, whether or not the 375 Ruger will become that, I don't know, but it has already given birth to several uh, offspring, shall we say, cartridges. And what the 375 Ruger case was designed on is they took the rim diameter and the belt diameter of the 375 H&H &H family. And instead of having a belt, they just maintained that cartridge wall diameter going forward. So they increased the powder capacity without having to go to the much larger head size of the 404 Jeffrey fat magnums that have become so popular. So it's, you got your 338 
uh, Ruger and uh, the compact Rugers, compact Magnums and a 300 compact Magnum. And I think they used it for the uh, 6.5 PRC and the 7 PRC and then maybe the 300 PRC. I'm not remembering for sure on that one, but it's giving birth to several more. Time will tell. You know, it's a pretty new cartridge yet. So um, I do like it as a straight up 375 Ruger because it's a 30-06 length. And because of that extra capacity, because you've gotten rid of that belt and kept that diameter all the way up, there's your powder capacity to uh, match the longer powder volume of the 375 H&H in the slightly narrower case. So it's a little more efficient. And you also then end up with your primer flash being a little bit closer to the center mass of all the powder. And the advantage to that is that if you can ignite a powder supply in its center, you get even distribution and burning of the powder around that initial site. And that means you're pushing less powder forward as it burns. Now back up a little bit. Let's take your typical 30-06. The primer's at the back. There's a long, tall column of powder. You ignite the primer. That flame shoots into the powder and begins burning it, obviously, right there at the primer, and it burns forward. Well, as soon as it starts to burn, it expands, and that expansion drives everything ahead of it out the barrel, including the powder, of course. So you're using up your energy in that first burn to push the heavy powder above it as well as the bullet. If you could ignite the powder up by the bullet, it would start the bullet down the bore while the rest of the powder burned back toward the base of the case and then increased the velocity down the barrel. A little more inefficient. That's what's inefe- that's what's more efficient about those short powder columns, short and wide. It's a subtle thing, but all those little things start to add up. All right, so yeah, I think you've picked a good one. The 375 H&H is, is just kind of a standard, and I don't think it's going anywhere because there are so many rifles chambered for it, and it's proven to be so effective that I think it will continue for a long, long time. But who knows, if we're so lucky as to maintain our gun rights in uh, our wildlife populations and still be able to hunt 100 years from now, perhaps the 375 Ruger will have taken over. It is definitely a more efficient option. All right, this is Mo Mountain. Hey, Ron, your videos are very insightful and fun. Well, appreciate that, Mo. I know you've done a bit of photography on your many hunting adventures. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about photographing wild animals on hunts. Thanks for the great content. Wow. Well, this is different, Mo. I've never had a question about wildlife photography, and I'm not sure the folks who are interested in ballistics here are going to care much about it. So I'll keep it short, but I do think it's worth um, touching on. Because to me, wildlife photography is a form of hunting. When I got into um, wildlife photography in my early 20s, I was probably away. I was probably 20, maybe 19 even. To me, it was exciting because I was then able to hunt outside of the hunting season. And finding and stalking animals and capturing them on film Man, that's just a lot like going hunting and capturing them for the dinner table. You don't get to eat them, <laughs> but you get to enjoy the magnificence. I mean, getting a big trophy elk or a deer or even uh, a songbird w- with your camera, you get a sense of accomplishment. You get to enjoy what we do as hunters with stalking, finding game, learning about nature and understanding the whole process. So I equate it with a form of hunting and I think it's legitimate for us to uh, touch on that. 
Now, as for photographing while I'm hunting, I have found that does not work all that well. I, I still do it to a degree. I used to do it a lot more because so often when I'm out hunting, I will see something that I could photograph and I just wish I had my camera. So I would carry that camera. Unfortunately, for effective wildlife photography, we need big telephoto lenses and they're long and they're bulky and they're heavy. So I would have probably four pounds of camera and lens hanging around my neck and a six to eight pound rifle on my shoulder and a pack with all my hunting supplies at it. <laughs> I had a load and the camera slows you down when you're, when you're hunting and shooting and the rifle slows you down when you're working with your camera. And what I would often find is that I had the wrong gun in my hand at the right time. <laughs> I missed some wonderful opportunities at wildlife photography because I had the rifle at the ready and vice versa. I remember one time I just had the, the rifle and I came across two accipiters and I think they were, gosh, I think they were goshawks. They were on the ground with a freshly killed cottontail and the younger one was mantling it. It's apparent that he had killed it and an older one came in and was trying to steal it from him. And I was within 20 yards of these. What a picture that would have been. I had left my camera behind because I just didn't want to carry all that weight around. So, yeah. The best I can tell you for easy wildlife photography while you're hunting is to just use your smartphone. You don't have a telephoto lens, but you can often get close enough to capture some pretty nice stuff that way. And I also like to capture animals in their habitat. Too often we think about getting close, close, and closer for a trophy shot, which is fun. But boy, I've gotten some really nice shots that were non-telephoto, pretty average of, say, a beautiful landscape in the fall with all the gorgeous colors, and there's a deer or an elk, relatively small, but it sort of just gives life to that whole setting. It captures the mood of your hunt. This is where I was hunting, and that's the animal I was hunting. And yes, it's far away, but this is the real world. They're not right there in your face. Now, if you want to get into all the details of wildlife photography, that's a whole nother topic. Write back if you want, and maybe I can do a video someday on the basics to get, what kind of a camera and lens and the rest of it. But if you really get into wildlife photography, it's just like hunting when you start to learn all about your cartridges and rifles and ballistics. There are a lot of gear things to learn about. But I tell you what, it is sure fun and satisfying. Thanks for those questions, Mo. Here is Russell. Says, yes, it's sad. Everything we touch gets ruined. Oh, ye must be. You must be referring, Russell, to something I said in one of my videos about habitat destruction, wildlife populations declining, and that sort of thing. I touch on that quite a bit because it's an essential part of what we do, and we need to communicate that, share that, and be concerned about it, and get involved. You know, we always say that hunters are true conservationists, and we do more for wildlife than anybody else, and blah, 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 which is largely true. Um, but this idea, and this is a very common one, that everything man touches gets ruined, springs from our very obvious understanding of how we have messed things up. I mean, the Labrador duck and the Carolina parakeet and uh, several other species went extinct at the hands of man. But this goes way back. The uh, moa bird in New Zealand was wiped out by the early settlers who had relative, well, pretty much a Stone Age culture at the time. It's simply overuse. 
And other animals do the same thing. When an animal gets out of control with its natural environment and can increase in population, say the way elephants are doing now in Botswana and that area of Africa, they strip the habitat because they've got to eat and, they were, and they're a big animal and they can push trees down and they do. So they're breaking limbs off and pushing over trees and stripping the bark and eating all the grass and whatever they can find. And that destroys the habitat upon which all the other animals live. So not only are the elephants ended up being starving, but so are the kudu and the eland and the oryx and even the small mammals and the birds. I mean, just everything suffers. Humans do the same thing when we come into an area and convert it into what we want that habitat to be, which is generally something that will benefit and or support us. So the problem and the challenge is how do we balance all that? And just to say that everything we touch gets ruined is not quite accurate because we need to understand and remember that we also have improved and saved. And this is where the hunters as conservationists comes in. Hunters stepped up in the late 1800s with this conservation ethic, which was just beginning. It was nascent. And uh, movers and shakers like Teddy Roosevelt really pushed it forward. And we all know it now. It's pretty simple. You don't just take, take, take. You have to limit your take to what the resource can sustain. And I always refer to this as sustainable use of natural resources. And the same thing applies to fishing timbering, crops, anything that we take from nature to support ourselves and our families, we have to use sustainably. Otherwise, we do ruin it. We wipe it out. But we also are the only animal out of all the creatures on the planet, the only one that will self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. Think about it. If a wolf comes across, I always say, the last endangered whooping crane in the world, and he's hungry, he's going to eat it. Whereas humans will say, we have to help whooping cranes increase their populations. So let's make this critical habitat off limit. Obviously, no more shooting and eating of whooping cranes. <laughs> but we're also going to sacrifice a large chunk of habitat. We're not going to plant rice on it. We're not going to use it for grazing. This is for those whooping cranes to stay alive on. Think about all the animals we've saved this way. Bald eagles no longer on the endangered species list. Peregrine falcons, we've brought them back. All kinds of species that we spent time and effort and money restoring. Habitats, look what Ducks Unlimited has done. Something like 3 million acres of wetlands built and or restored. This is self-sacrifice by humans to benefit others. So we don't just touch and ruin everything. We touch and re preserve and improve many, many things. So let's not sell ourselves short here. We do some wonderful things, but at the same time, we do need to remember that we get a little bit selfish and we don't think about it. We can ruin too much. That's an important point. Thanks for bringing it up, Russell. All right. That looks like about the last of it for today, folks. So, gosh, those were some really great questions. And <laughs> thanks for taking me on the carpet for my roughly incorrect uh, estimation of the 556 chamber and the 223 Remington. I hope that early part of this uh, broadcast got that stuff straightened out for you. If you guys think I still have it wrong and you'd like me to clean it up a little bit more, I'm happy to do that. But I think we nailed it down pretty well. 
So keep those corrections and questions coming in, folks. We will address some more in the next episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. In the meantime, let's all hunt honest and shoot straight.